Hey everyone, this amazing ESO Network show is brought to you by our fine sponsor, Amazon.com. Please remember to shop Amazon for all your geeky needs, no matter what time of the year it is. All you need to do is go to ESOPodcast.com slash ESO Amazon, or click on the Amazon banner on the ESO Network webpage to go to our e-store. It's the best way to shop and the best way to support this program, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Okay, that's enough of me babbling for now. Now on with your regular scheduled show. Welcome to the 42Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. This episode is going to go into a territory that I wanted to do ever since I heard a friend of mine, uh, the Phantom Troublemaker, who you might remember from last episode, uh, he did an interview with John Semper Jr., who was the executive producer of the Spider-Man animated series from the 90s, and that kind of inspired me to uh, want to do uh, interviews as well. So thankfully, in this day and age of Facebook, it was actually kind of easy to find some people that I was interested in talking to, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised that they gave me their time to talk. So uh, we're going to get to that later on. Uh, I will say in advance... Neither of the two men that I interviewed today have access to Skype, uh, so it was over the phone line, so the audio quality will be just a little bit on the poor side. I've tried to do what I can to improve that, but there's only so much that you can do, so uh, I apologize for that, but uh, it it is what it is. Uh, One thing that I wanted to talk about before we uh, get into the episode, though, is that a friend of mine, uh, Sean, uh, just recently announced that he was going to end his podcast. Sean Castic. Sean Castic is a show that uh, I used to work on as a co-editor. Format is very similar to uh, the format that we have here. There were a lot of topics and discussions going on. Uh, I really recommend that everybody, if you haven't listened to Sean Castic, you uh, do go back and give it a try. Sean's got one more episode, he says, for the end is going to come. And I don't say this just because I, I helped work on the show for a while. Uh, I was a fan of the show long before uh, I got to work behind the scenes. And in fact, I would say go back to the very beginning and just look for any topics that interest you because there were so many that I enjoyed listening to over the years. And it's a really fun show. So I really do think that if you like the 42 cast, you're probably going to like Sean Castic as well. And I'd really like to give uh, some more exposure to that show. In other news, uh, we have another uh, Select the Next Topic uh, competition coming up. I'll give more details on that at the outro. But before we dive into the interview, let's listen to this promo from another fine podcast. You gotta ask yourself one question, punk. What the hell is a cigar nerd? Welcome to the Cigar Nerds Podcast. It's the only show where two guys smoke cigars and talk about nerd culture. Do you like movies, games, comics, sci-fi, pop culture, and beer? Do you like science, nerd news, explosions for no apparent reason? Then this is the show for you. 
It's like being in a nerdy cigar shop, but for your ears. Check us out at CigarNerdPodcast.com. I just love that theme, don't you? So for those of you who didn't recognize it from the music, we're talking about X-Men today. X-Men is a show that changed my life. I reached an age, about 13, where I just wasn't interested in cartoons anymore. Uh, I thought that cartoons were very childish. There wasn't a whole lot that you could do with them story-wise, and I felt like I had just grown beyond them. And then one day, because uh, I still did occasionally watch uh, the odd show or whatever, I watched the premiere of X-Men, and I was immediately hooked on this show. It was a level of storytelling that I had never seen done in a cartoon before. The characterizations and the way that characters were allowed to interact with each other was so much better than anything else that I had ever seen. And it has driven a lifelong love of both animation and superheroes. And we're also going to talk about another show uh, called Exo Squad, which I felt like took everything that X-Men had done and just cranked it up to the next level. And so to discuss those shows with me, I have two of the primary creative forces behind both of them. From what I understand, uh, they are two-thirds of what's called the Tennessee Mafia, uh, and that is the head writers for both Exo Squad and the first half of the X-Men animated series, and that is Michael and Mark Edward Edens. How are you guys doing? Uh, good. Doing good. Glad to be here. Good. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. So yeah, Mark and uh, Michael, I uh, just uh, wanted to ask you uh, a few questions here about your time working for those two shows. I consider X-Men and Exo Squad to be two of the three great animated shows of the 1990s. So that's a pretty good success record, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we were fortunate. Uh, I, I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening to this are very familiar with X-Men, sadly, because of the way Exo Squad was uh, marketed. I'm, I'm not as sure how many people are familiar with Exosquad, although uh, I know that everyone I know who's seen it love it, so I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on those two shows. So the first thing that I wanted to ask, and Michael, I'll start with you, could you just give me uh, some background on how you got into writing for television and uh, animation, you know, leading up to the time that you started working uh, for X-Men? Oh, well, the way we really got started was through an organization at the University of Tennessee, uh, where we made friends with Eric LeWald, who, if you're familiar with X-Men, you know, was the story editor on X-Men. Hmm. And... We three decided to write a bunch of stuff, and then 
Eric went to Los Angeles to see if he could sell it. And while he was there, he was invited by someone who lived in his apartment building to try to write or try his hand at animation writing. So he got started, and then he brought Mark out uh, to write animation. And then I followed. After a while, I followed Mark out there, and that's how it was, we got it was right in the it was right in the early eighties when they started doing all the the toy tie-in you know, action adventure shows, mm-hmm. and you know they'd be on it like every every weekday after school or before school or something. And so suddenly they needed it was more than just Saturday morning network shows. Suddenly they they were putting out a lot more animated shows, and they needed more people to do them. They needed more writers. So it was a, it was a good time to get into it, to break into it. And uh, and Eric, you know, like Michael said, uh, Eric had a uh, a guy that just lived in the apartment next door who was a staff writer for Hanna Barbera, and got him started working on Challenge of the GoBot. Mm. Uh, you know, sort of poor man's Transformers. Right. And uh, and then we. Uh, uh, Eric got me to, uh, told him, you know, I got these guys that I've written stuff with, you know, maybe uh, I could write something with them. And so we did a script together and then started doing them on our own. So it's, it's the usual Hollywood story. You just have to know somebody. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good story. You guys uh, from Tennessee, you get your in into uh, L- uh, Hollywood in L.A. there. Um, what, what was the, for, do you guys remember what the first um, series that you worked on was? First one I did was Challenge of the Gobots. That, uh, yeah. that the, first the first one I did, I was uncredited <laughs> for Defenders oh, yeah. of the Earth. Oh, okay. And then I can't remember what the first credited one. First credited one may have been the, the Real Ghostbusters. Okay, yeah, Go- Real Ghostbusters is a show I watched a lot when I was a kid. I, that's uh, that's a favorite. What other shows, uh, Mark? Let's let's go with you uh, after GoBots. Uh, what other shows did you work on? Uh, you know, there's so many. It's kind of hard to hard to remember. There was a um, it's kind of like Exo Squad. There was, a, there was an interesting show that, that not many people saw because the toy wasn't very good called The Spiral Zone that uh, I, I worked on. I actually had a story editing credit even though I was more like a staff writer hmm. and did a lot of those. And then we, as uh, Michael said, uh, we did, I think, 10 uh, of the real Ghostbusters all together. I did some on my own and then we did a bunch together on that. But um, it was a, it was a time when, when you, you just... Uh, you know, somebody had a show and they'd have big writers meeting, big cattle call writers meetings with the same you know, dozen or 20 people would show up and, and get a story Bible and start coming up with premises. Hmm. So it was, it was a busy time. And like I said, it was a good time to, to get started because there was so much uh, being cranked out. Yeah, I mean, I was the target audience at that time, so I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember those days and all the different shows that were on. I mean, you talk about GoBots, and yeah, I mean, that was my childhood right there is GoBots and Transformers, so <laughs> I remember that very well. Um, Michael, were, do any other shows that you worked on uh, stand out for you before X-Men? Uh, let's see. Well, it was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Hmm. And uh, let's see, what did we do? Bionic Six. I think Mark did more of those than I did. I just worked on one of those, I think. And then Top. Uh, you know, I don't know. There were a bunch. Oh, Camp Candy. <laughs> I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> didn't I uh, read I that? Um, you, uh, uh, didn't uh, one or both of you work on Beetlejuice? Oh, yeah. yeah. We both did. Yeah, we did quite a few of those. Yeah. Yeah, I did a bunch of those and was story editor on some of them when they were finishing up the series they needed an additional story editing hand so that was actually my first story editing job was on beetlejuice and then uh, eric lewall that we mentioned was uh, eventually he took a staff job at disney and i did a lot of freelance uh, work with disney the uh, tailspin did a bunch of those and uh, the old chippendale 
rescue rangers to get a bunch of those. Those are also shows that I very fondly remember. I think what, what most of the shows that we worked on have in common is they, they, they were all geared towards older children. I mean, occasionally, I, I kept trying to get a, get a job writing for, for Smurfs. Mm-hmm. Right. Even though a lot of the shows we wrote for had, you know, child audiences, a big part of the audience who was children. Mm -hmm. But we didn't write them for children. We wrote them to to be things that we would find interesting. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that really stood out to me about X-Men. You know, just the depth of the storytelling and the fact that, hey, these heroes can all have differences of opinion and sometimes one of them can get mad and sucker punch one of the other ones and, you know, just things like, and they don't always run around wearing their uniforms they actually change their clothes and stuff like that, it was just things that, you know normally Saturday morning or cartoons you know, it's just like, oh, well, you know Superman's always, you know, in his uniform he, you know, they don't they don't even show him as Clark Kent much because it's an adventure cartoon for, you know, cartoons you know, for kids and stuff like that. But uh, so, so now we're getting to the point when uh, when X when X Men came up. So, uh, what? Uh, how did you start working for X Men, Mark? I think I'll, I'll go with you again. Yeah, that's uh, it's kind of a sad story. Uh, Eric uh, Lewald and I went to the uh, the original meeting to to, to meet with uh, Marvel and Stan Lee was there, and then. Uh, and Margaret Lesh and a bunch of people from, from the network to sort of plan the show to do the basic, uh, you know, approach to the show. And we went under the impression, which, which our, we had the same agent, and our agent had told us that they were looking for, for a story editing team. Mm-hmm. And so I went, we went to the meeting with Eric, and then afterwards they, they let us know that they actually had only budgeted for one story editor. <laughs> and so somebody had to, uh, to, to take a bullet for the team and... Uh, and not be a story editor. So I, I always like writing better than going to meetings anyway. So I let Eric uh, be the story we agreed, you know, that, that he would be the, the story editor and I would be like a head writer, the main writer, but I would go to all the planning meetings and everything, which is a you know a real luxury when you're writing for a show anyway, to be to be in when all the decisions are made that are going to affect the script you have to write. Mm-hmm. So, so it worked out really well, and I ended up, I think, writing five of the, the first 13 and, and, and working on the stories for more of them. I think Michael did probably three of them. So, you know, so between yeah, us, we did a half. Did just two? Okay. But we, yeah. we did uh, pretty much, uh, we had a real input on, on how the, the, the direction that the show went. And so did you pull Michael in, or Michael, did you just see that X-Men was going on and decide to submit some ideas, or how did, how did that work? Oh, Eric and Mark pulled me in, I guess, both together. It was always understood that once Eric got the job, the the Tennessee Mafia was going to be involved. (laughs) Um, We talked talked him out of going to law school once, uh, before he went out out to Hollywood. He was... He actually accepted the law school, I think, in Emory or something. And, uh, and we talked about it going, because we knew we didn't really want to be a lawyer. <laughs> so he's always owed, owed us a favor after that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I remember after they had the, the meeting a day or two later, I guess it was just Mark dropped by my house and had all the you know the, the papers that they'd handed out at the meeting and stuff, and we talked about it. And I don't know, I talked to Eric over the phone about it. He had a comic book shop up the street and wandered up there and bought, I don't know, half a dozen issues of X-Men and, and started reading up on it. Well, that kind of sort of tees up into the next thing that I wanted to ask, which was how aware of X-Men were you uh, as a franchise prior to working on it? 
Well, I had no clue. I had never read an X-Men comic. Yeah, yeah I'd never read any of them. I think I'd heard the name and sort of vaguely knew that they were some kind of superhero team, and that was about it. When you went to the comic book store, did you try to get uh, sort of a, a breadth of, of issues, or was it just whatever, you know, the most recent ones were, or, or did you try to, like, go back and sort of see a, a, a time frame, you know, the early stuff to later stuff kind of thing? Uh, well, it wasn't a very big comic book store, so I pretty much picked up whatever they had on hand. Okay. It, you know, wasn't considered classic, so it was not hideously expensive. Hmm. There was a very deliberate uh, approach that was worked out at, at, at those first meetings on, on which characters to use and which era, you know, because the comic books have been around for a long time, mm-hmm. and which era to sort of set the show in or to, to take. And, you know, there were, there were certain characters that they were you know, so basic to the X-Men that they had to be, I mean, not just Professor X, but Cyclops and Jean Grey and Wolverine. You know, you had to have those. And at the time we were doing the show, I think Gambit was, was really hot. Mm-hmm. Character by Tim, he was really popular, and and Roe uh, was you know was popular, and then uh, and then we specifically wanted to find a character that would sort of be a surrogate for the, for the audience, mm-hmm. somebody who whose point of view could be that of somebody who wasn't an X Men fan, somebody who was new to it, and, and plus somebody who might would have a connection to a younger audience because the X Men were all I mean originally they were teenagers, but you know by you know, nineteen ninety they'd been around for so long, right? Older. And that's how we, we ended up with Jubilee. That actually, uh, the, the people at Marvel suggested her as uh, a younger character who could serve that function mm-hmm. of letting the audience learn about the X-Men and learn about mutant powers, you know, and, and, and meet all the, the established characters through her. Mm-hmm. So that was all very deliberately planned for the, for the first season. And we actually decided... Uh, you know, maybe at that first meeting that uh, that the whole Sentinels and the uh, the basic story of of uh, you know the question of are the X Men a, a blessing or a threat? You know, are they and the whole political story that that would be an interesting way to tie that whole first season together. Now, do you remember? Because you, you talk about the politics, and, and you just made me think of a question I hadn't written down. But um, there was a female president uh, in the beginning on X Men. Do you remember whose idea that was, or was that, or is that just kind of lost in the mist of time? You know, I don't, I don't remember. Um, you know, we we were basically, you know, having two politicians, uh, uh, a well-meaning president, and then the whether it's Senator Kelly or mm-hmm. whatever, who was like an evil. You know, uh, kind of a conniving guy in the background, and and so it was probably done to to differentiate. Them. Okay. You know, it was probably done well. If 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 one of one of these politicians is going to be be a man, you know, why not let the other one be a woman? We probably, yeah, I imagine we thought it was kind of kind of neat to to have a have a woman president just to just to do it you know right well yeah i was just saying it it just strikes me as as very progressive you know uh of a decision i mean senator kelly is from the comics and so i I understand he just got pulled in but the whole you know female president thing was was unique to the series so that's why i was uh i was curious about that but uh so so what interested you mark since you were there at that first meeting what interested you about x-men um, other than a job, which uh, <laughs> is, always, is always interesting. I think this just, well, I mean, the X-Men is such a, such a, a clear reference, I mean, mutant powers, and, and, and originally, you know, teenagers with mutant powers, I mean, it sort of ties in with the whole way that any kind of outsider or any unusual, for most teenagers, I guess, feel like, you know, there's, maybe there's something wrong with them, or people don't appreciate them or understand them, 
I think. So, so you know, you know, it's a real strong setup for a show. You know, for something that's that's gonna gonna have some resonance. But um, I think just the, the fact that that everybody, except maybe Stanley, everybody was was kind of on board with with doing it as a. With not writing down to children mm. because we were doing an animated show, with with making it fairly sophisticated and fairly uh, adult, and, and that that was really appealing. Was that the first time you'd worked on a series where that was kind of the the thrust was, hey, let's not write down to the kids, let's write at something that we'd like, and then you know that way adults can watch too, or or was or is, was there one before this? Well, the writers are always trying to do that. Uh, um, you know, we had about, pretty good luck with Beetlejuice in that respect. I mean, it was, yeah, the topic, yeah. it was humor, but it was a much more clever humor than if you were really pitching it toward, you know, seven-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, comedy, more comedy and Beetlejuice. word play and stuff. And, and, and in the, the real Ghostbusters, um, yeah. you know, was, was geared toward fans of the movie, just like X-Men was, was mm-hmm. written to make fans of the comic books happy. And they weren't children. They'd be, you know, teenagers or older people who, you know, either were reading the comic books then or had read them mm-hmm. years ago. So, and the same thing with, with the real Ghostbusters and, and Beetlejuice. It was taking something that hadn't been done for children and doing it animated and trying to make it, you know, friendly to children but not aimed directly at them right. to, yeah. to really connect with the audience of the original. Yeah, an important point, too, is the same... Fox executives were involved in Beetlejuice and X-Men, the Sydney Iwaner and Margaret. Yeah, Margaret Lesh and Sydney Iwaner, they, they, they knew, we'd written stuff uh, to them before, and they knew us uh, really well, and they and they trusted us and, and Eric and, and all the the, writers, the other writers that he brought in. They trusted us to do uh, a good job and to do it with an adult uh, appeal without going overboard. Right. They, they, they trusted us. We had enough experience, that, and they knew that, that, that we would, would make it uh, appeal to adults, but, but still make it something that children could watch and enjoy, too. Did you ever have an issue with censorship where you really wanted something in an episode and you were told, no, that's that's going too far? Well, the, um, when, when we killed Morph hmm. in, in season one, and I think it worked out really well that that all you got was right, like reactions and stuff. But we 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 wanted to show it. Mm-hmm. We wanted you to actually see him see him dying, and uh, and they pulled back from that. They were a little a little worried about that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. That I, I can I can see that. Um, I, I actually like it as it is because your imagination can you know summon up you know whatever you know you you think it looks like and <laughs> yeah. So I understand. Yeah, it, it's reactions of his friends that, that carry the emotion. It's not seeing him die. It's seeing their their reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, uh, is there anything that uh, particularly interested you about X Men? Uh, well, actually, just I don't know. It was fun. Which is, you know, a strange thing to say, maybe. But, you know, if you've worked on a bunch of these shows, you know that some of them are not fun to work on. Uh, but I just had a blast doing X-Men. I enjoyed working with, particularly with Sydney, who was there every single meeting. Sydney, I want her at Fox. And then I've always enjoyed working with Eric and Mark. Uh, but just being there, because unlike a lot of shows, even though I wasn't on staff and things, I went to particularly the first two or three years almost every single meeting that they had and sat around the table and, and listened to ideas and had a little input, even if, you know, I walked out of that particular meeting without an assignment. But usually... Yeah, I think 
you I, think a lot of, I think a lot of the fun comes from the fact that, that we were all involved at the beginning and we're, we're figuring out how we wanted you know, to make it a good show and, and the executives and everybody were on board with that and, and were letting us do the kind of show that we wanted to do instead of taking something that somebody else had worked out or somebody else had, had, had made all the decisions on and then you're trying to make that work. And with the X-Men, it was all, you know, here's the basic, here's the world. In effect, the, the comic books were the real world that we wanted to do a show about. Mm-hmm. So, and we were kind of just set free to have fun with it. Yeah, we're uh, we're actually getting onto a topic that I'm actually kind of interested in. Of um, you know, one of the things that stood out to me about X Men was that uh, in those early seasons that you two worked on, it was a serial where each episode pretty much let, even if there wasn't a to be continued at the end, there was some element that carried forward into the next episode. And you're talking about having these different meetings, um, and so my question was. To create that continuity and to create that sense of this is all one story, even though quite a few writers were working on it, did you all sit around and discuss, you know, hey, you know, this is how the season needs to be broken down and these events need to happen and you write this one, you write this one? Or was it more of, you know, uh, people would submit ideas to the series or how did that whole, uh, you know, how did that develop? How did it evolve? Now, the, the first season I know was all com- completely controlled because we, uh, we we just sat around and, and figured out the basic story we wanted to tell and which characters uh, you know we, we wanted to bring in mm-hmm. along the, the course of that. And I, I think I ended up sitting, sitting down and writing uh, premises for all maybe all thirteen of the first season, um, like three or four page mm-hmm. you know, detailed premises. So it, it was all structured. To, and lay down. We knew exactly where we were going with uh, before we started in on, on the scripts. I did a count one time, and out of the first 65 episodes, I think either as writers or, uh, you know, story by credits or something, you know, Mark and I have credits together on like 31 of those, mm-hmm. even though... You know, we didn't write that many scripts, but we, you know, we would often, and particularly Mark, would often do, you know, premises and, and outlines that would then get kind of moved on to, to other people. Your names are uh, were at least on there often enough that uh, I was uh, able to recognize them uh, without trying, you know, I mean, because that's the thing. I, I wasn't looking for who the people were that worked on the show. It's just over time I started recognizing certain names kept popping up. So, yeah, I, I, can, I can definitely believe that. Well, another thing that made the show fun was, was that, that ongoing story mm-hmm. that let you really have time to get into the characters and things. Because, you know, if you're doing a 22-minute action show, you know, there's a certain amount of that that's just going to be, you know, blowing up sentinels and, you know, flying around and, and, and incinerating things. Yeah, because you got to have that. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't leave much for, for the story. So having that continuing story was it was a huge plus on that and, and ExoSquad. Yeah, I like the fact that there wasn't a reset button pressed at the end of every episode like is sort of typical for Saturday Morning Fair. You know, they, things had consequences and they continued. Were you aware of other cartoons that were on at the same time? Like uh, Batman the Animated Series is probably the big one that would have been on at the same time. Yeah, I was aware of those. And I watched some Batman, but I don't know. I didn't have really Batman on trade there. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I didn't do any Batman. Yeah, I was just wondering because it was another big superhero property that was on at the same time if that influenced you at all what they were doing with Batman uh, or or if you kind of just ignored it. Yeah, well, I, I think we just ignored it because uh, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't watch it. I think I've seen some of them, but I, I didn't watch the show. But, but you're aware of things because it's uh, it was such a small uh, world in animation. So like I was saying, when they, when somebody would do a show, it would be the same twenty people. Mm-hmm. If that many, they're showing up trying to, to work on it. And if they're, if they're not writing for, for X-Men, you know, they're the people doing Batman. <laughs> right. Yeah, so you, you kind of knew everybody, knew what yeah. everybody was working on. Yeah. And so you were trying to get all your people as many X-Men scripts <laughs> as you could so they wouldn't drift off and wind up working for Batman, and then you couldn't get them when you wanted them. Yeah, so that was uh, part of what I was wondering about, uh, how you developed the storyline. So, Mark, you said you uh, had done the outlines, uh, but then were you the one that was going out finding the writers to do that? Was that Eric's job? Who? How did that uh, develop? Yeah, no, that was Eric's job. That was part of the, the res- responsibility of being, you know, having that story editor credit is he had to go to the meetings where where people did, there, there, were, there were meetings early on, and Eric knows a lot more about this because he was at the meeting, mm-hmm. but uh, where there would be an executive who, who didn't didn't like the way we were going or didn't like what we were planning, and he had to suffer through all those meetings and <laughs> try to straighten all that out and everything, and while while we were sitting back happily writing scripts. So, so he, he story editor is your buffer. He takes all the bad meetings, and if you're lucky, you don't hear about them. <laughs> We used to play poker once a week, so you know, that's a great place to complain about all the network meetings you've had to go to. Right. How did you juggle adapting the source material with creating your own unique content? Um, nothing. That's a good question. Maybe it helped to have not read that many of the comic books. <laughs> well, well, but in some way, though, you have to stay true to what already existed, or people that were already fans of X Men would be unhappy with you know what you produce. You had to you had to have something there of that. Yeah, and, and we were real pleased that, that uh, with the feedback we got eventually from fans of the comic books because they they really liked them. I mean, they did mm-hmm. like them. Um, well, we also had. Uh, Sydney and uh, Bob Skier, who's another writer, he did a number of episodes, uh, and they were huge fans of X Men, so they knew you know all the X Men mythos you know forward and backwards. So if anybody you know suggested anything that didn't fit, they were quick to say, uh, I don't know, Cyclops wouldn't do that. Until you say, oh, okay. any, I didn't realize that. Any time you're adapting something like that, I mean, for me, the, what you want to do is is just find the essence of it. You know, find what it's mm-hmm. what it's really about and what it's basically about, and just try to be true to that. And then we approach the comic books that way. You know, I didn't. I mean, we weren't fans of the comic books, but not not because we disliked them. We just hadn't read them. Mm-hmm. And as we read them and as we got to know the stuff, you know, you just want to try to bring out the same the same things or the, you know, bring, emphasize what's, what you think is best about it and try to bring that out. And usually that's the, the same things that, that the fans, uh, the people who are already fans like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and a bad adaptation is when people approach something and, and just use it as an excuse for them to do what they want to do. You know, they have a, they have a show in mind and they're going to do it in the guise of the X-Men. Right. You know, that's a bad way to do it. And we just tried to, to bring the X-Men alive in different mediums. Yeah, I mean, when somebody who knew more about the X-Men than we did, which, you know, 
in the beginning was not difficult, you know, could tell us something that would fill in, you know, our perspective on the characters or something, we, you know, we welcomed that because that was, like Mark said, that's what we were trying to do, get the, the essence of the characters across, you know, what they would do, what their attitude would be. Do you remember any examples of, uh, you know, because this is sort of different from the censorship question for something the network didn't want you to do. Were there ever any times that you can remember trying to do something where somebody said, either Marvel or somebody who knew more about the character said, hey, that's probably not, you know, something you should do with this property because it, it doesn't match up with what we see? Uh, not really. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember uh, anything. Although if there was an objection, they you know it might have filtered through Eric to me, so I may not remember it. Mm. I, I always tried to tried to be flexible. I mean, you know, if you know, it's not it's not my life story. I mean, if they say, well, you know, we we don't want to take this character that way because you know, in two years from now, in the comic books, we're thinking we might do some such and such with them. You know, to me, I just said, well, that's, I I'll work with it. Yeah, it seems like there was a time or two when somebody had an idea for doing something and they would say, no, we don't want to do it now because we're thinking about doing that next year with the comics, but I can't remember the specifics of it. I can tell you one thing, though, because I went the other way of watching the cartoon and then going to the comics. The comics stole your idea of having uh, Sabretooth in the mansion. Whoever's, whoever's idea that was, that happened in the, uh, the, you know, the cartoon first. And uh, then the comics were like, hey, that's actually pretty neat. Let's do that in the comics, too. <laughs> So it worked both ways. Uh, so did you guys see the animation when it came back or was it just, you're just writing it on paper you know, or typing it. And once the script's gone uh, until the episode airs, you have no uh, information about it. You know, there's such a time with, with, doing, with doing the animation. I mean, it takes so long to, to do that. To, to, you tend to have just have moved on if, if you're writing scripts. Hmm. But uh, we, we may have seen, you know, some of the early stuff that came back. I really can't remember. Yeah, I don't think so. I think the first time I saw it in any form actually animated was on a Saturday morning, you know, watching Fox because X-Men was coming on today. <laughs> so did you actually make sure to tune in to, to watch all your episodes when they aired? <laughs> no, after a while I forgot because I've moved on to other things. So, I mean, <laughs> I would, if I came across it, I'd say, oh yeah, I'll watch that. And you'd say, oh yeah, I'm either, I wrote that or Mark wrote that or, you know, somebody else that I know wrote that. Um, so, uh, d the, the voices of the, uh, voice actors probably didn't influence your writing then too much of, uh, because you, you kind of wrote independently of the production itself. Would that be a fair thing to say? Yeah. I don't think we ever, I never heard any of the, the voice stuff until mm -hmm. the shows were finished and on the air. Yeah. I don't remember any, but yeah, a lot of the characters, that was one of the nice thing about the, uh, the mix of characters in the X-Men is that, uh, that we used was uh, a lot of them had such distinctive voices, mm. and and you know you, I mean Gambit is such, such an odd voice, and then uh, and being from the South, we all we all really liked Rogue, um, <laughs> part, partly for the way she looked in the costume, but, uh, right. uh, partly for the voice too, um, and then Beast was sort of the, uh, the writer's uh, surrogate. He had all you know he's a word guy, so he had, he got all the writer's favorite lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Beast was one of those ones that I, I really liked from the beginning uh, because he was smart, but he also seemed to have fun. You know, before you know, usually in a in a kids' cartoon kind of thing, the smart person is very boring. But the Beast like was smart. Cyclops, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, Cyclops. I always had trouble. I had trouble writing for Beast. 
I never could, yeah, I never could think of an apt quote. Mm. Well, I'd be riding so along, and I'd come to a, a screeching halt and reach for my Oxford book of English quotations and start coming through looking for key words that maybe could be, you know, done with this beast. So he was kind of awkward. So, so on that subject, Michael, let's start with you. Do you have a favorite character? Doesn't necessarily have to be one of the main cast, uh, but do you have a favorite character uh, from X Men? Ah, well, of course, there's Wolverine, and he's everybody's favorite character. Right. Uh, I also like Apocalypse a lot. Why is um, that? Well, I got a lot of assignments out of Apocalypse. <laughs> there was a, a while where I was kind of the go-to guy on Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. I think I wrote. The first apocalypse story. I'm trying to get my dog out of here. <laughs> and I don't know. I had a, what do you call it? A, a minor in religious studies. So apocalypse's language <laughs> came fairly easily to me. Um, Michael, or I'm sorry, Mark. <laughs> um, do you have a, a favorite character from X Men? Um, it would probably be stemming that because I, I, did, I did like the fact that he was uh, sort of so uh, eloquent and erudite. I'm not trying hard to be right now. No, you have a greater store of quotations off the top of your head. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe I like to pontificate more, and then uh, peace cut to do it. <laughs> but of course, everybody, everybody likes character with attitude, though. So Wolverine and, mm-hmm. and you know, Gambit was always fun. Yeah, some people complain that Wolverine is everyone's favorite, but I always say that, you know, Wolverine, yeah, he's everywhere, and he's kind of overwritten and, and stuck in places where he shouldn't be. But when Wolverine is written well, Wolverine is an excellent character because there's so much mileage you can get out of, you know, the guy with the bottled with the rage that he tries to bottle and he quite can't, and the, you know, the past that he can't quite remember. I mean, Wolverine's a really cool guy, so I really liked what you did in that series because, again, this is the hook that brought in a guy like me, you know, into these characters because you did write them very interestingly. Um, so I appreciated that. Mark, we'll start with you on this one. Were there any characters that you wished that... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Were there any characters that were forced on you that you'd rather not have used? Uh, um, I, none that come to mind. I mean, uh, you know, so, some of the characters were, weren't as interesting. Um, you know, Mukan were there mainly because they were such, such standards for the, for the show. I mean, Cyclops and Jean Grey weren't, weren't that interesting in, in season one. Mm-hmm. But then in the later stuff, you know, they get... They get a lot more interesting because we did a lot more things with you know, all the, the Phoenix stuff and all that. Mm. But, um, no, I mean nobody. Uh, nobody was that key. on Jubilee. Even even the the uh, executives who, who were saying, you know, well, uh, Jubilee would be a good one, you know, because she's in the comic books now and mm-hmm. you know, all that. But like, like I was saying earlier, she's she's a, the kind of kind of character that we had to have in there. So. Nope. Michael, how about with you? Did you ever have uh, a character sort of forced on you that you didn't want to use? Uh, let's see. Nobody major that I can think of. Um, and there were some, you know, that would show up as kind of henchmen and like some of the, what's his name, Mr. Sinister episodes mm-hmm. uh, that I wasn't quite sure how to handle them because I didn't have all that information about them other than what their mutant power was. Mm-hmm. So they didn't quite gel as, as you know, real people in my head. Well, that made them a little problematic, but you know, not not too many. Well, I wasn't real fond of Mr. Sinister just because I didn't like his name. <laughs> <laughs> a little on the nose, huh? <laughs> Those yeah, are Stanley names. You know, Mr. Sinister, strong guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. 
chuckle about strong guy. Um, from uh, from looking at the comics and the material that was there, were there any characters that you wanted to use that you just weren't able to because they didn't want them on the show or at that time or whatever? Uh, none for me. Yeah, I don't remember any. Okay. Yeah, we were moving so fast mm-hmm. and you know frequently having new characters thrown at us so that you know we didn't didn't have too much time to find other characters. <laughs> On our own. Um, you you had mentioned uh, Mark. You had mentioned about the t- uh, about killing off Morph. Um, did you know at that point that you, that he was going to be brought back later, or did that come from later discussions and and uh, working on the next season? I think that came came later. I don't think that was actually planned at the time that we killed him. I could be wrong, but I, I don't remember um, any plan to resurrect. Paul, there was like a, a fan response of people who really liked Morph and you know they liked what you did with him but he was you know, funny they yeah liked he was him so much they wish they could have seen more <laughs> but they they decided that it was uh, Marvel that you know we were saying we'd like to kill somebody in the show and then and, you know we were saying well who, who is there a character we can kill <laughs> and then they suggested Morph because he'd, he'd been in the, the comic books a little bit but he hadn't done done that much i don't think and mm-hmm. so they said hey he's one you can, you can kill if you want to. yeah he had been a very minor character back in the 60s uh comics um but yeah that was one of those things that i just i always wondered about as a kid was you know uh, why you know uh you know characters getting brought back from the dead and things like that uh you know and whether you know that was planned or whether it just came about because of external reasons or anything like that so one of the things that distinguished X-Men was the depth of the villains. Um, Michael, I'll start with you on this one. Is that something that you consciously tried to bring uh, to the characters, is to, to give the, the villains, uh, you know, more than just ha-ha-ha, I'm a bad guy, you know, kind of motivations like typical Saturday morning cartoons? Uh, yeah, in a sense, but that's, that's how we always try to do villains. Mm-hmm. You know, a villain is, is only interesting... If he has depth, you know, if, and if you're lucky, if there are parts of him that you can find that aren't villainous, uh, it's kind of like Magneto. I mean, you know, from, mm-hmm. if you look at it one way, you can really understand Magneto's agenda. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense. Uh, and to have him actually be, you know, Charles Xavier's friend and a really good friend at that, mm-hmm. you know, just adds a whole lot to what they have to say to one another, even when they're, you know, arguing about, you know, how evilly wrong you are mm-hmm. in whatever you're trying to do. And they both think the other guy's wrong in what he's trying to do. Right. But they have a mutual respect for each other yeah. and what they're trying to do. They yeah. just think the other one is wrong about how they're going about doing it. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, that is one of the things that really drew me to X-Men also, uh, is, is that relationship between the two of them. Um, I, I think that that was really uh, done, executed uh, well over the course of you know, all the seasons. Uh, uh, Mark, uh, how about with you? Uh, were you, were you conscious of trying to sort of elevate the the character of the villains, or uh, was that just something that you did as part of your writing? Well, you always want to want to try to make the villains as as, as interesting as uh, as the heroes. And of course, a lot of times the villains come out more interesting than the heroes. <laughs> but but, um, but yeah, you, you want to get you want to give them real depth. I mean, you want them to on their own terms to not be villains to be mm-hmm. heroic in, in, in their own minds 
So after uh, you know working on two seasons, uh, you the two of you were working on the Phoenix Saga, which was an actual comic book storyline. Whereas before, you would adapt sort of the idea of X Men, but most of the story or pretty much all the stories, even though they had some elements from things that might have happened in the comics, they weren't actually a storyline from the comics. So did you approach that differently? Like, did you get the the Phoenix Saga issues from the comics, or did you just take a sort of general idea of it and, and continue your own thing? Because uh, what I find interesting about that one is that even though you're adapting a comic book storyline, it very much worked with what you had already developed for your version of X-Men. So I was just kind of curious if you remember the process uh, of adapting that. So Mark, uh, starting with you. Uh, you know, sadly, I don't remember the, the process of that very much. I think, uh, they, you know, they must have sent me the comic books or something. And uh, but uh, and maybe because the, the storyline was already so intact, that may explain why I don't remember it as well. Hmm. Because it, it just wasn't as much creative energy going into it is, is doing the first season of the, the series. Mm-hmm. So I really don't remember remember it all that well. Uh, Michael, do you uh, have uh, any other th- uh, thoughts of, of adapting the Phoenix Saga? Uh, well, I didn't really adapt it. Mark wrote all, all of the outlines mm-hmm. for the Phoenix Saga, and I don't know, I think I did every other one or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, no, I did all the odd-numbered ones, I think. <laughs> I think I did three out of the five. The fact that I can't remember it is no reflection on the on the story. Their whole their whole series that I wrote for that I can't remember. <laughs> I can understand with the breadth of work that you've had, well, how that could be. Well, you kind of you kind of you kind of once they're done, you you kind of put them out of your mind so that you don't get confused when you go on to the next. One. Mm. Yeah, I don't know the Phoenix the Phoenix Saga. I think was when you had the the line in there that had been a joke line for us for a long time where he just put in there and then they have the greatest fight ever or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) They put put that in one of the outlines. (laughs) I think so. I think that was in the Phoenix saga. And then you went and described a little bit of what happened, but you started off. And then they have the greatest fight ever animated. Well, that was, uh, to me, the pinnacle of what that cartoon produced. So, uh, yeah, I think they did actually put in the greatest fight ever. So. <laughs> um. Sometimes you stick things in an outline just to get it out of your system. You know? <laughs> So after that, though, um, that's even though you each, I think, did a, a few episodes uh, after that. For the most part, that the Phoenix Saga ended your involvement with X Men. So why did you decide to leave? Um, I'm, you know, I must have been working on something else, and uh, <laughs> you were doing Exo Squad. <laughs> was that what it was? Was that when we were doing Exo Squad? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we well, we bailed at the end of that season to take over Exo Squad. Hmm. So it was pretty much just the transition. Yeah, it had been another project on this time at Universal that Eric had been involved with in the first season. And, well, we both had been involved in it with him. Uh, but then when X-Men got picked up again for another season, Eric couldn't do the second season of Exo Squad. And so we took it over from him. Oh, okay. That makes sense, because the second season of Exo Squad's when it went to uh, a 52-episode season instead of a 13-episode season, so that's... Yeah. Well, <laughs> we did we did 39, oh, 39. in the that's second right. season, yeah, mm-hmm. to make a total of 52. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I hope, yeah. 
it's a lot more episodes. And unfortunately, 13 fewer than they were supposed to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we leave for Exo Squad, though, uh, was what, what, do you have anything that you feel particularly proud of uh, with your work on X Men? Mm. Mm, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just proud of being a part of it. Mm. I mean, I don't have anything that that. Partic- well, no, I take that back. There's a one two part that I I worked on. I think the way to approach it was by idea, as I recall, which is the oh shoot now. I can't now suddenly I'm drawing a blank on it. It's a time travel episode. Yeah, time fugitives. Uh, time fugitives. Thank you. I you had time in the title somewhere. Right. And that was that. That was one I pitched to Sydney, and he looked at me like I was an idiot for a while. <laughs> Sydney always looked at you that. Well, yeah, Sydney can do that. But it was like, you know, I looked at him and said, "Why don't we tell you know one first episode we do this way." And then the second episode of the two-parter is just the first episode redone with an additional character thrown in there trying to stop what they're doing in the first episode. Mm-hmm. And he kind of thought about that for a while, and he said, yeah. I think I told him that was our Rashomon episode or something. Yeah. <laughs> As we tell the same story from two different points of view. Yeah, that I had never seen that done before on television. I, I'd read a, a, a novel like that once, but I'd never uh, seen that done on TV before, and that was that was very cool. Having the two time travelers with different agendas and seeing the two different iterations of the same sequence of events. Yeah, I, I think I, I told them because I, I told them that they could reuse some of the animation from the first part in the second part <laughs> up until the, the guy intervened. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they did. I think they they even changed the angles so that they didn't reuse any of it. I think there were a few scenes that they did, but you're right. And so, so quite a few of them, they did change uh, the perspective, so it didn't look like they were just doing one on the cheap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that turned out a whole lot better than, than I'd even hoped in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it worked extremely well. Oh, Mark, uh, is there anything that you're uh, proud of uh, from working on X-Men? Uh, no, no, no particular. Uh, well, you're always proud when you're writing animation when you kill somebody. But That's fine. I'm very proud of the fact that, uh, that there's some quote that, that Eric pointed out to me one time where, where one, of the, one of the, I don't know if it's the writer, director of, of uh, the movies, some of the movies that they're doing now mm-hmm. said that when he when he was hired, he went back and to learn about the X Men. He watched the animated series, so mm-hmm. that's uh, that's nice. But the the, the quote that really that I'm really proud of is Time uh, uh, Saban, who you know, of course, were animating mm-hmm. uh, the X Men. That uh, he was doing the Power Rangers at the same time, and so at one meeting he said, hey, "I got the two two uh, you know hottest uh, kids shows." around right now one's one's uh you, you have to have a college degree to understand it and the other one's so stupid nobody can understand it. <laughs> <laughs> which is how he described the x-men and the power rangers so mm-hmm. that, that was very satisfying <laughs> yeah. uh, that was actually brian singer uh, by the way who uh said oh. that he went and saw all the x-men uh animated episodes before he started doing the x-men movies um it's uh it's on the commentary track actually for the first uh, x-men film that he did oh, okay yeah 
And so yeah, it, it's it shows sort of the legacy of X Men that uh, it's still being looked at as uh, one of the that that animated version is, is still looked at as one of the primary uh, you know versions of the character. And it's it's always, it's always satisfied work on a show that actually uh, you know is popular with an audience and well remembered, mm-hmm. which. Uh, I don't know if you're ready to talk about Exo Squad, but that might be a good segue. Right, yeah, no. Well, I mean, the only, the only other thing... I'm, right. Um, the only other thing that I wanted to ask about, um, did either of you watch any of the X-Men episodes after you stopped working for it, or was it pretty it's pretty much you were done with it, you moved on to your next project, and, and you kind of left it behind? Uh, let's see. I watched a few, but not all that many. Hmm. After the first season, I don't think I saw any of them. Yeah, I was just interested if you guys had thoughts about how the series developed after you left, but uh, yeah, no, I, I understand it's 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 done and you're moving on to the next thing, which was Exo Squad. So, um, so you already described how, uh, you know, so Eric couldn't uh, do the uh, story editing and that's how you got involved uh, doing the story editing for Exo Squad. So, Mark, uh, starting with you, what excited you about working for Exo Squad? You know, I think, I think it was um, the, the basic idea and the basic story had been worked out by, by Jeff Siegel at, uh, at Universal. And he uh, had been one of the first people that we'd worked for because he was actually back at Hanna-Barbera when we were doing Challenge of the go Bus. Hmm. And he was a big, uh, big history buff, big World War II uh, buff. And essentially, Exo Squad was was kind of like doing World War II in outer space. <laughs> that that was one of the things I wanted to ask. Were you conscious of that at the time, or is that just something with hindsight you realized you were doing World War II? Uh, no, no, that was, yeah. that was all very uh, yeah. That was that was Jeff's idea was you know, maybe interplanetary war hmm. and kind of the, the feel of World War II, and uh, and then that was exciting. Because mm-hmm. we knew it was going to be another show where where we'd be able to do a, a long continuing story with characters that weren't uh, you know super babies or or you know teen superheroes or something <laughs> you know, something that wasn't wasn't for children you know, mm-hmm. something that uh, children would watch and, and would enjoy because it's it's animated and it's got lots of lots of action and stuff but but the stories and everything would be for an older audience. So that was exciting. Yeah, Michael, was it pretty much the same for you, or was there anything else that really interested you and hooked you into Exo Squad? Yeah, that was that was pretty much it. I mean, we knew from I don't know the first time we met with with Jeff, which was when they were getting the you know the first season started because we worked a lot on the first season because we were in hiatus from X Men at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we knew what he wanted to do, and we had done some development for Jeff a few years earlier of a series that never got off the ground. We did a, a five-parter with the, the Universal Monsters, and we knew he was a big fan of anime and that he wanted to do a more you know, adult show with a, kind of the, the sweep and focus of World War II with this humongous you know, inter-solar inter system war here, mm-hmm. interplanetary war, and that was exciting. So, yeah, it was, it was great. What were the differences, uh, Michael, between working for Exo Squad and X Men? Ah, well, let's see. I don't know. Well, one thing was just you know the sheer amount of the work, uh, particularly once we took over the second season, and which we knew it was going to be thirty nine when we took it over, mm-hmm. and we did all thirty nine episodes in 
six months. Um, and that was, I don't know, that was a big thing. Didn't, didn't have time for anything else except Exo Squad. I mean, yeah. lived and breathed Exo Squad for six months. And the people at Universal were just you know, uniformly fun to work with because hmm. they were all really into the show. They really wanted to make it good. And so, you know, you had Jeff and Will Minio, and then you had the other people uh, like Ralph Sanchez and Michael Torres and Jonathan Rosenthal, who were all, you know, eagerly working on this thing. And they loved the show as much as we did. I mean, it was, you know, it was one of the happiest experiences working I've ever had. Even if it did almost work me to death. <laughs> yeah, I think we I was, I was putting in 100-hour weeks on that show mm. for six months. Uh, and Mark, uh, what about for you? Uh, what were the differences between working for X Men and Exo Squad? Um, well, since, since you know there there wasn't anything. I mean, Jeff Siegel had the idea and everything, but there there wasn't since there wasn't a comic book. Since it was being created uh, out of whole cloth, it was even more satisfying because mm-hmm. we got to uh, to to really. Do do everything we wanted, and then I was going to say that, that we really got into Texas Squad. I think more than any other uh, animated show that that I have worked on. I mean, it really partly, partly because of the schedule. We were, I think I was writing two outlines every week, and they were some of those would be like seventeen page outlines. Yeah, some of them were over twenty. <laughs> oh, right. It was like an unformatted script. It's like all the dialogue would be in the outline. Um, yeah. <laughs> But, but when we were doing doing it so fast and doing you know with such concentration on the story and everything that that you could you could write it that fast because you really got you got into the caught up in the whole thing. So you said that the basic idea was already created, but uh, were were the characters already created? Did you have any influence on you know creating new characters and adding them into the series? I mean, how how did that sort of interplay and, and work out? Yeah, the, the main characters were created, but they weren't essentially final, if you know what I mean. So as we went along, you know, we had a lot to do with, you know, their attitudes and, and how they talked and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you had, you had the squad and it, it had some details, but their relationship to one another within the squad was not completely, you know, finalized. So that all became part of the the mix that we worked out as we went along. And then, you know, we had, and and Mark particularly had, a lot of fun creating, you know, sort of guest characters, uh, many of whom, like Thrack, Mm -hmm. were supposed to be just kind of a one-off for one episode. But he was such a great character, you know, we had to bring him back. And so he wound up in, I don't know, at least four or five episodes, I think. Yeah, I, I actually listed a few of them here. Uh, characters like uh, Algernon, uh, James, Nera's brother, uh, Ketzer, Thrax. You know, that those were the kind of characters that I was that, you know, thinking about. Like, were those created already? Or, you already mentioned Thrax, but were a lot of those other side characters that appeared in multiple episodes, were those uh, either your or Mark's uh, invention? Ah, well, it's yeah, I, think, I think we usually made them up. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then the, the story was so big. Yeah, the story was so big that you know, you, when you create a character, there, there's a chance to use them again mm-hmm. later on. It's, it's there's so much going on, and it's it's all swirling around, and and just the progression of it is it, it kind of uh, 
in a way, it's kind of an oscillation. It's like it starts on, you know, at one point it expands big, and then it all comes back to Earth at the end. That it all, everybody all converges. Mm-hmm. Exo Squad had a good bit more violence than X Men, and so I wanted to get your thoughts, uh, Mark. We'll start with you on the appropriateness of violence in uh, an animated medium, where even if it's not pitched solely at kids, uh, you know the kids are, are most are, are most likely to be watching. Yeah, for me, the key the key with violence is. Uh uh, even though it's an animated show, to not make it cartoony. Um, mm. What I mean by that is to, sh- to show the, the emotional and, and, and real life consequences of the violence. That uh, what, 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 an example of an episode that, uh, that that I really liked was there was uh, one where there was some some essentially Boy Scouts mm-hmm. who were you know, on an outing, and then when the war broke out, and they just got stuck on this planet and. Uh, I forget which uh, uh, which Neo Sapien leader it was. The guy ends up you know, crashing and dying, so they end up watching this guy. Yeah, uh, Shiva, and they're all even though he's the enemy, they they see him die and they're all upset mm-hmm. by it. It's like suddenly he's not just the enemy; he's a living being that's dying. And really, we had a character, and this this I thought was really neat. Um, uh, a member of the squad uh, who just got. Fried on reentry coming into Earth. Uh, Alice Nereidi, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, Will Menu, uh, after that, he put a, a photograph of her taped to the inside of uh, uh, J.T. Marsh's helmet. Mm-hmm. And then we, we brought her, a, a clone of her back, the, the Neo Sapien clone later on, and sort of addressed that whole sense of loss. That when, you know, when somebody got killed in Exo Squad, it wasn't just some nameless person dying. It was a real emotional. I mean, it was kind of, you know, the same right. thing. We did the same thing with Morph. It's just we did it a lot of times in Exo Squad mm-hmm. with different uh, characters. Yeah, my friend and I said, don't get attached to anybody in Exo Squad. <laughs> Because you never know. Yeah, you never know what will happen. <laughs> right. Uh, and so, Michael, is that pretty much uh, your thoughts also on, on that issue, or did you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, that was the thing. I mean, yeah, I think violence is all right if you show truthfully the consequences mm-hmm. uh, from an emotional standpoint. And, you know, as long as you don't show somebody being whipped open on camera, as it were. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that and an episode where we killed Nara's brother. Mm-hmm. James, I mean, we had we got fan mail from that. Uh, one of which was, you know, you say, I can't believe I'm a 21 year old guy sitting here watching a cartoon show and bawling my eyes out. I mean, it was it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's we were doing a big, a big you know war movie essentially, but we were trying to make it an anti-war movie. Right, you, you were know, showing and, and the I horror. Tried to just, I, I, I think it made it into the show at some point. We actually wanted to, and Michael, you probably remember if it actually went through or not. That we wanted to make it clear that that JT Marsh you know, loved to fly, but he didn't like fighting. Mm-hmm. You know, that, yeah. that he wasn't really a warrior. He was a flyer who happened to be good at, at leading this squad, but he hated the war. Yeah, that's, that's so unusual for a, for an action show. Mm-hmm. You know, to have the, the hero be somebody who would rather be somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know that that was in an episode. I cannot tell you which episode, but I do remember JT saying that. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, that. Yeah, I mean, the characters in that, and like you talk about the heartstrings when people die, I mean, it's so... 
I mean, uh, even uh, Captain Marcus, who was such a jerk um, in the first season there, um, when, when it comes time for him to die, it's, <laughs> it's an emotional scene. Um, so uh, that, that was one of the things I was actually going to ask about, is that that was a planned occurrence uh, when the show started? Was, was Marcus going to die at the end of the first season, or did that just kind of happen uh, out of necessity of his character was always hampering things and they kind of needed to be gotten rid of? I think that just kind of happened. Um, yeah. Because our first season, we did a little differently in that we would meet, Mark and I would meet over at Eric's house, and we do extremely rough outlines for the first season, partly because we were in a hurry. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have time to write 20-page outlines the first season. <laughs> so we would sit there in an afternoon and do, you know, I guess pretty much, seems like they were in four or five-episode chunks, and we would do four or five-episode chunks of roughly what would happen, and it would be, you know, maybe, maybe a page for each episode. Mm-hmm. And then we'd scurry back and write them. And we were, like I say, we were working fast. I was not, I mean, I was not a huge fan of the more science fiction-y anime kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So when we started writing it, I didn't know that E-frames could walk. I thought you just flew them. <laughs> I think I was working on the seventh script when Eric called me up and says, Will tells me that E-frames walk. Because... <laughs> I'd always have them fly in and land and get out of the E-frame mm-hmm. and do whatever it is they had to do. And then if, you know, they had to fight, then somebody would get back in their E-frame and it would lift off the ground and they'd fly in and, you know, strafe the area or something. Mm-hmm. And Will was was getting those scripts, not telling me, and just having them, you know, not get out, exchange a few lines of dialogue, and then <laughs> walk to wherever the fight was. And it just, I felt like such an idiot. <laughs> Because I'd, you know, I'd never seen Robotech. I right. had no clue. Right. <laughs> but I knew my war movies, and I knew World War II forward and backwards. <laughs> <laughs> so, so both X, the well, the early seasons of X-Men that you were part of, and Exo Squad were both serial shows. Were the shows already set up that way, or is that something that you brought to the table and, and said, hey, let's let's make this flow together and, and not make this a standalone one-and-done each episode? Yeah, it, it was Jeff always planned, planned for Exo Squad. Yeah, yeah Jeff wanted to do it that way. Okay. With the, I think there's an occasional one that's sort of standalone. Uh, you know, something mm-hmm. like, well, it kind of fits where it is, but, you know, something like Flesh Crawls, Mm-hmm. Where they they really you know you first get a good look at the neo sapien auto mutation syndrome. There's you know that one and a few others that are more standalone-ish than others. Mm-hmm. But Jeff pretty much wanted it to, to be a continuing serial, but have it broken up into you know sort of you know four or five episode chunks as much as possible mm-hmm. that were kind of like mini-series within the series. Mm. And, and that was kind of dictated by the, the war strategy, in a way. It's like, well, yeah. let's do, do four or five where they, they try to reconquer Venus, or, you know, do so many where they do this or that. You know, it was, mm-hmm. 
I heard uh, from just reading on the internet and, and looking at information about the show that Delion uh, was supposed to die earlier on than he did. Uh, it was before the moon. Uh, but then that was vetoed. But then somehow he eventually died anyway. <laughs> and then you guys brought him back. So so how did that hold? Do you remember... Uh, uh, Mark, we'll start with you. Uh-huh. Do you remember how that evolved? <laughs> Was that just a misunderstanding? No, that was that was Jonathan Rosenthal uh, freaking out. Um, he was Deleon was supposed to die on Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we planned for that because we foreshadowed it in one of the episodes. Uh, I think the episode Dream War uh, that took place in Australia. Oh yeah, yeah. You awesome. yeah, the Aboriginal cave art of a planet blowing up and Deleon's E-frame being destroyed mm-hmm. in the cave art. So we were all set to kill him on Mars. And when we started working on the, the Mars episodes, uh, Jonathan Rosenthal just said, you know, you can't do that. You can't kill off a main character. So we said, well, all right. So then we went with the whole, um, uh, what's her name? The sergeant. Torres. Rita Torres. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Went with Rita Torres getting lost on Mars and they think she's dead for a while which was kind of unsatisfying, but pretty good because it gave him a chance to, you know, think about how much she meant to the squad and all that. And then after we did that, a few weeks later, one of the toy company executives said, you know what would be great? If you killed one of the main characters. (laughs) So by that time, we were getting ready to start retaking Earth, and the next episode we were going to go to was, was taking the moon, so that they could use that as a, a platform for the invasion of Earth. And so we decided to kill DeLeon on the moon instead of on Mars. I actually kind of like that, though. It's sort of, there's a certain realism to uh, you know, foreshadowing somebody dying, and then he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then he just gets killed yeah. unexpectedly somewhere else. I mean, that's, that's kind of the way real life is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of remember that sort of saying something about that in a line of dialogue somewhere about being nervous going to Mars. I think it was Maggie and, and Bailey on exchanging a line of dialogue about being nervous about going to Mars because they both seen the cave art mm-hmm. or the, the Aboriginal art in the cave in Australia. And Bailey on says something like, you know, you know, it'll, it'll be all right. <laughs> kind of thing. You know, don't worry about it, but she's still worried and they go, but he survived. Yeah. Uh, what prompted you to bring him back then uh, just a few episodes later? Because I love DeLeon. No, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we were very, that Will Minio had come up with something in the first season that we were able to use, uh, which is the interface you know, between the E-frame and the pilot. Mm-hmm. That I think in the first season, there's kind of a hint that it gives the E-frame sort of sentient capabilities. Because mm-hmm. as, as their E-frames are being destroyed on Olympus Mons, uh, JT Marsh's E-frame says goodbye to him. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to use that, that neural connection between the pilot and the E-frame to then say, well, you know, the black box captures everything that's going on in the pilot's mind. Yeah, so what if you, it's got all yeah. his memories and everything. Yeah. So what if you made a clone and then downloaded those memories from his black box that survived, you know, his death on, on the moon and put those memories back in him? Would that be, you know, De Leon or not? And it went with the whole thrust of the show, which, you know, I realized as we got to the end of it, and I always sound pompous when I tell anybody about this, that it's it's a whole long meditation on what does it mean to be human. 
Well, that's so true. So here we have, you know, a clone body, but it's got the memories and as much of the emotions as can be captured of the original person. And if you put the two together, you know, is that the original person? Mm-hmm. And that was that was part of it. I mean, we got had the same thing with Nara, who's you know undergone this, these injections by Ketzer, and she's developing weird powers and stuff. And just before he dies, you know, Phaeton says, you're not human. Mm-hmm. And Nara says, my brother was. And then she kills him mm-hmm. in revenge for her dead brother. I mean, and then all the stuff that the Neo-Sapiens were going through making, you know, their weird biological things. Well, and what's interesting, at least to me, is that some of the Neo-Sapien characters are the most human <laughs> characters you have. I mean, you, you've got Marsala's uh, whole journey, uh, but even like a character yeah. like Shiva who is sort of like the, the yeah, chief is sort of like the villain version of what you're talking about with JT Marsh of, of a Neo Sapien who doesn't necessarily want to be doing what he's doing, but he's loyal to what, you know, uh, to his people. And, uh, you know, he's a guy of honor and everything. And, and you know, you, chief has got some real depth to him. You know, he's a very interesting character and I really like him. Yeah. He was my favorite bad guy. Yeah. Do you feel that uh, bringing characters back from the dead cheapens their sacrifice? Mm, not really, because I don't think we overdid it. Mm-hmm. And it was a really special thing, and it fit, like I was saying earlier, it, it fit thematically, I think, with the whole tone of the show about, you know, what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, if we did it willy-nilly or did it just to be cute or did it, I don't know, or what might be considered a frivolous reason. I can't think of a frivolous reason in Exo Squad, but, you know. Well, I was talking more in a general sense. It's kind of a judgment call. If you do it too much, it, uh, it does detract from, from the, the drama or the, the emotion of, uh, of any kind of sacrifice. But mm. Yeah. I, I think it's we like, it yeah, we did it once on Exo Squad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that I kind of enjoyed, but it got tired toward the end of Supernatural, which is a live-action show you're probably familiar with. Mm-hmm. They did it all the time, right. and that yeah, really got tired of them after a while. <laughs> right, and, and having gotten into comics because of your work on X-Men, I can tell you that comic books bring characters back from the dead all the time, and it gets really tedious, because time. you know as soon as a character dies, you're like, why do I care? Because I know they're going to be back in a year. You know, So that's, that's definitely uh, when it goes too far. So... As the uh, as the series progressed, um, there were a lot of uh, romantic plot lines that were going on. It, one of the things that uh, kind of confused me watching the series was that in the beginning of season two, it seemed like Maggie was being paired uh, with Kaz Takagi. Um, there's a scene where they're trying to escape from some Neo-Sapiens and they, they kiss at the end of the scene. But then at the end of the season, it seems like that was, you know, nobody, uh, other than Kaz maybe getting giving her some looks or something that that was never developed any further and she of course uh gets close to Delion was do you remember the what happened there with that was it the, the hot that Kaz was a younger guy and did people kind of you know uh, steer away from that or uh am I just overthinking this or <laughs> did, yeah I, I just think she changed her mind Delion's a much more interesting guy <laughs> I mean you know Kaz is nice but he's basically you know, a callow youth. Mm-hmm. Whereas De Leon has some some depth to him. <laughs> he was one of my favorite characters. Uh-huh. 
I will say though, I did like the fact that even Brodsky finds somebody, you know, with uh, with Eve Hanley and <laughs> everything. But, so even even yeah. even the really gross kind of guy, you know, and he uh, you know he uh, sophisticates himself up a little bit there. Um, yeah, we thought that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mark, who was your favorite character on the series? Oh, we had we had so many characters. It's hard to. It's hard to, hard to pick a favorite. That's kind of a cop-out answer. Uh, Michael, is Deli, do I take from your conversation here that Delion was your favorite? Uh, maybe. I was also very partial to Nera. Yeah. Who, you know, I started off not liking all that much. Mm-hmm. But as, as the show developed, you know, it suddenly dawned on me, this whole show is about her. I mean, she starts off as this basically naive country girl who got a chance to fly and went to the academy, and now she's you know serving her first tour of duty with a a real E-frame squad, mm-hmm. and then all hell breaks loose, and she has to grow up fast. Mm-hmm. And we put her through so much hell in the course of those you know episodes, particularly yeah, was really in the second that, season. Mm-hmm. Such a such a nice, well-meaning, innocent sort of character. Is, is literally changed by this, this experience. I mean, she loses her brother, but then she's even physically you know, being changed by what, what's happening to her. And I think that's why we found it so satisfying that she's the one that actually kills Feta. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because initially, I, I think, oh, I was going to say, initially, I think the idea was, well, of course, you know, J.T. Marsh will mm-hmm. kill Feta because he's the hero. And it just didn't seem right. But it yeah. seemed right if we let Nera do it. Mm-hmm because of everything she'd gone through. It was like the final evolution of her character. Yeah, that was such a powerful moment, too, the one that you're talking about, where she says, my brother was, and she shoots Phaeton, because it's, you see, I mean, because I don't think Nera could have done that, you know, at the beginning of the season, you know, season two, but... Yeah, at the beginning of the season, there's no way mm. she would have done that, but she's, I don't know, she's working through her own form of post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Except it's this sort of traumatic stress in the present that she's going through every day. Mm-hmm. Well, her relationship with Marsala is very nice, also in that you know even the others, uh, you know they they at times they have a hard time accepting him, you know as who he is, and Nera always accepts Marsala for who he is, and they have this very loving relationship, even though it's not you know romantic necessarily. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always found their uh, scenes very touching. Now he was, you know, from an emotional standpoint, he was kind of our Spock character. You know, he, he was very even, nothing really changed him throughout the entire war. He was always true to who he was. Yeah. And, you know, if you remember some of the old Star Trek TV series mm-hmm. episodes where, I don't know, there was one where, I don't know, with the spores, and he became happy for a while. And then at the end, you know, the girl asked him, you know, uh, you never even told me, you know, what your first name is. And he just kind of looked at her for a moment and says, you know, you couldn't pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And that's all he says. I mean, it's, it's that kind of relationship that, you know, Marsala has with, with Nera because he knows, you know, you know, he does love her in his own way, but he knows it can never be because they are two such totally different types of people yeah the uh you know he leaves her at the end of that final episode and even tells her you know have children you know be happy and 
you know, he leaves her there. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. What uh, characters do you wish that you'd been able to do more with? Were there any that you felt like uh, you, you wish you'd had more time with? Uh, I'm going to cop that answer again. I mean, uh, I, wish, I wish you'd had more time with all of them, which, of course, is the plan. But, uh, mm-hmm. With the uh, unproduced 13 uh, more episodes. How about you, Michael? Was there anyone in particular that you felt like you had big plans for and uh, you were, you know, that you wanted to do more and you just didn't have the time to do it? Uh, no, not really. I mean, the only one I feel, well, no, take that back. Some of the, the junk fruits, hmm. like, uh, you know, there was a, you know, the budding relationship between J.T. Marsh and Colleen. Mm-hmm. Uh, his last name eludes me. O'Reilly. The female O'Reilly, yeah. Uh, yeah. It would would have been nice to have been able to do a little bit more with that, but maybe, I don't know, maybe we managed to do just enough. Because mm-hmm. that then made it meaningful when the, you know, the planet chaos disappeared in the last episode. Mm-hmm. And she was on it. Yeah. <laughs> and he wasn't. Yep. And they had... That's last episode. <laughs> Well, and they had that yeah. conversation where they were talking at cross purposes, and each thought the other was rejecting the them, you know, when in fact they both wanted the other one to come with them. <laughs> and it's one of those horrible yeah. misunderstandings that happen in television all the time. <laughs> what uh, do you, what do you feel was your biggest accomplishment on the show, uh, Michael? <laughs> oh God, just surviving production. <laughs> I mean, we had the. We had the Northridge earthquake in the middle of it, mm. which, you know, shut down parts of Universal. And, uh, yeah, we were right in the middle of, you know, finaling two episodes a week and doing, you know, the additional outlines for the next week's episodes you know, coming up. And, and I got a phone call from uh, one of the producers saying, oh, don't worry about it. You know, just take time off, you know, while we, we try to sort things out from this earthquake. And then three days later, I get a phone call saying, okay, we're back up and running. Where's that episode to do? <laughs> we were on such a tight schedule that uh, uh, Ralph Sanchez finaled one episode without reading it. <laughs> yeah. He finaled the last episode in, without reading it. Oh, wow. We turned in the script and he, he uh, said it was finaled and sent it on without, without reading it. Mm. So they didn't realize that you had left it at a colossal cliffhanger then. Now, they knew it was going to be a cliffhanger because they'd read the outline. What they didn't know was that we weren't going to be able to resolve the cliffhanger because the show was going to be canceled. So, so was that a big surprise to you when it was canceled? Well, yeah, we never would have done that last episode that way if, uh, if, if yeah. we'd known that. Because we, we just assumed that the 13 was guaranteed because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you want to do 65 episodes of a syndicated yeah. show, and that, that was episode 52. Mm-hmm. We were ready yeah. for the next 13, and we knew what was going to happen, more or less, you know, in broad strokes. We knew what was going to happen in, yeah. in those final and we 13. Also knew the toy company loved it, and the toy sales had been, you know, they'd been pretty decent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the normal scheme of things, but about that time... You know, it really people that, you know, 40 days of, of toy company tie-in syndication had kind of gone away. 
Yeah, the networks had moved into that daytime weekday spot with a lot of their own animated content, and Exo Squad was shown at you know really super early in the morning, like five a.m. kind of you know time frame in a lot of markets. Yeah. Which was a, ter- a terrible time for a, for a show with with the appeal to an older audience. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not up at that time. You know, if you were doing a show for five year olds, you know, they might get up and watch it that early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't catch it until it was on the USA cable network. They, it ran in syndication, uh, you know, there uh, for a while, and that's how I caught it, uh, which I think was after it had, uh, finished its initial run. But yeah, because I, I don't even know to this day if it was ever shown where I lived in South Carolina at the time, or if it was shown if it was just at some awful hour, because I was pretty I was pretty well-versed in what was on TV, but that was during waking hours, not... <laughs> <laughs> not at four in the morning. I didn't check those listings, so it might have been shown yeah. where I lived, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know about it. Uh, Mark, do you uh, feel that uh, what was your biggest uh, accomplishment for the show? Uh, well, in a serious sense, it was just doing a, a show that, that, that an animated show that, that really had uh, an adult story. Mm-hmm. In effect, it was. I know they do that in anime all the time, but that was so unusual for. You know, for an American show to be that way, and in the uh, in the less serious sense, it was quoting Dante twice in a in a cartoon <laughs> show. So. <laughs> right. And one, once once in Italian. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Abandon hope, all you who enter here. Let's. <laughs> the other quote was when they put Mars back together. That was uh, the divine comedy ends with some line about. Uh, the, the love that moves the stars and the other planet. And uh, when Algernon was exp- explaining gravity as the uh, as, as matter's uh, response to the loneliness of space, he uh. refers to it as the love that moves the stars. Oh, okay. Yeah, see, that one went over my head. It seemed quite poetic for Algernon, but I didn't I didn't know where that came from. So that's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it's, pretty cool. Yeah, very end of the uh, comedy. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> I told you he always has an F quote in there. <laughs> yeah. So you, you uh, mentioned, Mark, that you knew what was going to happen in season three. So can you, uh, do you remember the broad strokes of what you wanted to accomplish? Yeah, well, you know, if the show was, was World War Two, essentially the last 13 was was like uh, uh, the Cold War, except it was going to be hot. It was like, uh, you know, the Allies and the Axis had a new enemy mm-hmm. coming in. So there was this, at the end of number 52, we have this this huge invasion force flying past J.T. Marsh, coming, you know, invading our solar system from, from some other solar system. And so you have another war that you have to fight, and you have the humans and the defeated Neo-Sapiens having to join forces to combat this outside threat. So that was you know, the, the story of the next 13. And, and one of the more interesting... Uh, uh, things about that is that the, the the only person who would be able to rally the all the defeated Neo Sapiens to fight alongside the humans would be Phaedon, mm-hmm. who of course had been killed, but there was a clone of him. Mm-hmm. And the question the question is: if is this clone evil because Phaedon was evil, or was Phaedon only evil because he grew up? You know, he had the background that he had. If you you know, bring this clone to life and and use him. Is is he gonna be evil the same way Satan was, or is he gonna be 
you know, a heroic leader of the of the neo sapiens in this new war. So that that was gonna, there's going to be some interesting stuff going on. Yeah, that was uh, yeah, that was an interesting philosophical question. So even bring that up even before the aliens show up of. You know, is it right to murder the clone of Phaeton because it, it, it hasn't done anything wrong? Yeah, I mean, if, if you had a clone of Hitler right. at the end of World War II and then it was just a kid, you know, would, would he be dangerous or would you just say, well, let's get this kid into art school this time? Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know he'll be much happier and he'll be fine. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh,. If- Michael, if if Exo Squad were revived and they wanted you to come work on it, would you do that? Oh, in the shot, <laughs> I would be there so fast. <laughs> how, how about you, Mark? Oh, absolutely. And and the sad, the sad thing about Exo Squad is that, uh, and this is true of a lot of animated shows that uh, that I've worked on, is one reason that, that a lot of times I'm, I'm not eager to watch them is because you. It, you see them in your head better than they than they end up on on screen, mm-hmm. and that's just a you know it's a budgetary limitation. You know, uh, animated movies the animation is so great because they spend tons and tons of money, mm-hmm. and if it's not perfect, they redo it and they redo it until they get it exactly the way they want it. If you're doing a series for TV, you don't have the budget and you don't have the time to do that. So the animation it's always a compromise. Mm-hmm. You know, and it never looked as good as you wish it would look. But if they did it now, it would be done CGI, mm-hmm. which for a show like ExoSquad would be perfect, because in CGI, the outer space stuff and the E-frames and all the, the action and everything would look real. Mm-hmm. You know, the CGI in an animated show would be almost the equivalent of CGI in a, a live-action movie, you know, of outer space stuff. I mean, it would... It would it would be so good. And then I found with uh, CGI, working on both uh, drawn and CGI episode, uh, series that CGI actors are just better actors. You know, it's, it, 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 it's just the face. It, with the kind of budget that you've got, mm-hmm. um, the, the emotions and the expressions, and, and the, it just reads better. It seems more real. And so the acting is better. And so for a show that tried to be as, as dramatic and and have the kind of emotions that we wanted to put in the ExoSquad, the CGI cast would would carry it off even better. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like the show would be better all the way around if, if it was done now. No, I can't disagree with that, and that's one of those things where, you know, in this age of nostalgia where so many things are coming back and so many things are getting sequels 20, 30 years later, I keep hoping one day I'm going to read that ExoSquad is making a comeback. <laughs> So, uh, uh, Mark, we'll start with you, but uh, what have you worked on since uh, ExoSquad? Anything that you would like to just mention uh, that you're proud of, that you were involved in? Proud of? That's a good question. It's your chance to plug yourself. Oh, okay. Um, well, I've, I've done a lot of live action, too. I did some, some Disney Channel movies and some, uh, some live action stuff. And Michael and I both uh, uh, worked on Young Hercules. Okay. Uh, in live action, did, did a lot of episodes of that. Uh, made Ryan Gosling the star he is today. <laughs> but um, I, I'm sure I'll think of something. Uh, okay. Uh, you've when, when the podcast is over, I did a show for Mattel. It was CGI that, that is what convinced me that, you know, how good CGI could be, uh, called Accelerators, which was just, you know, their toy, you know, car tie-in show. But 
the the racing stuff and the car stuff and just and the comedy and things worked so well just because it was CGI mm-hmm. and then that was very satisfying. Oh, that's cool. So, Michael, uh, what have you done since working on uh, X Men and Exo Squad that uh, you'd like to mention? Uh, well, one that that Mark forgot slipped his mind: Wing Commander Academy. Hmm. Oh, that yeah. yeah, which was kind of Exo Squad Junior, <laughs> <laughs> in a sense, because it was yeah, lot, we tried to get the same, the same you know, the same sensibility to it, trying to make it as real as possible, and that was. That was the only show where I've been to every uh, voice recording, mm. and they brought in just an amazing voice cast for that show. I mean, we had you know, we had Mark Hamill and Ron Perlman and Dana Delaney and just you know, a big you know, group of main actors. Wow! Now I need to check this voice. thing out. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I forgot about we we just we only did thirteen of those, right? Yeah, we only got to do 13 because Universal got sold. And uh, this was another one with, with Jeff Siegel and, and Ralph Sanchez and, and the whole Exo Squad crew, as far as the executives were involved in it. And then Universal was sold, and that always happens whenever a studio gets sold. They fire all the executives and bring in their own bunch. And so, you know, we found out, I think it was the last day of voice taping that you know, the sale had gone final, and Jeff had received his notice that he was being laid off. Mm. And so it was it was a very bittersweet last taping. But it was it had a lot of promise. It was really starting to gel there at the end of the first 13. And it, I don't know that it ever would have been quite as good as Exo Squad, but I think it had the potential to be really close based on, on some of the episodes that were done. Oh, very cool. And I don't know. Other stuff we did that was fun was, you know, like Mummies Alive, <laughs> which was very cool. We had a blast with that one. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that show. That was done for Deke. No, I, I mean, Exo Squad kind of hit me uh, just before I went to college. Um, and so even though I, I still do watch animation to this day, during that period when I was in college, that's like, <laughs> I, I, there's a gap there of, I don't know what was on TV and, you know, things were coming on that I was not aware of. I've, I've since watched, you know, ser- several animated series in the last few years, but. Yeah. Well, Mummies Alive was, was kind of a fun, fun show. So yeah, we had a boy who was a reincarnation of an ancient Egyptian pharaoh. <laughs> living in San Francisco and his mother worked at the museum and the Egyptian exhibit came alive because they were the protectors of the pharaoh uh, and they knew a bad guy had come back and was going to try to get him and finish the job <laughs> uh, and we worked all this Egyptian mythology into it and we found out you know that they referred to the you know the area in the western desert where the sun set and all that as the western gate and that became you know, the area of the Golden Gate Bridge was actually the real Western Gate, and that's why this kid was living in San Francisco hmm. when he was reincarnated. And, you know, we had a lot of fun with that. It sounds like a, a series of young adult novels. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's essentially what it is. It's kind of a young adult thing. And uh, anything else that uh, you worked on that uh, you want to talk about? Oh, well, I don't know. See, there was Young Hercules, which Mark mentioned. Mm-hmm. And... Trying to think, uh, I don't know. Yeah, you know, just a bunch of other things that 
that had their their fun moments, but not necessarily worthy of mention. <laughs> sure, no, I I understand. Uh, like I said, I just wanted to make sure that uh, you know that you guys had a chance to plug anything that you wanted to talk about. Is there anything that you're working on right now, Mark? Uh, that that you uh, want to talk about? Uh, you know, current project. Well, I'm I'm and, and I've been finishing it for a year, but I'm, I'm finishing a novel that uh, I'm actually going to uh, edit this after my agent's so slow that. Uh, <laughs> You know, it took so long to actually sell an novel. Mm-hmm. At my age, I don't know if I can wait for it to be published regularly. So I think I'm going to put it on Amazon myself just to just to get it out there. But I'm I'm, I'm very close to having it finished and, and putting it out. So. Oh, okay. Is there anything that you can say about it, or does is it, is it hush hush for now? No, no, nothing hush hush about it. It's uh, it, it's called Death Be Not Pwned. <laughs> okay. so, but the fact that I know what pwned means shows that I'm, I'm much cooler than people think I am. <laughs> Except I don't know that anybody says that anymore. <laughs> okay, it's taken me so long. Yeah, I started working on it a long time ago. But it's, uh, it's basically a, uh, a kid who's, who's writing his college application essay. And, you know, it's uh, the weekend that it's due. It has to be done by Monday. And he also has a job delivering pizzas in one night. While he's uh, delivering pizzas, he runs over death <laughs> and ends up having to chauffeur him around over the weekend while while he's desperately trying to finish his essay for his college applications. <laughs> kind, of, kind of a dark comedy. Oh, that that definitely sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 uh, this, this will inspire me. I'm, I'm at the point where I'm making the changes that nobody but me will notice. Mm. You know, where you obsess over over a sentence, and say, well, maybe I should move this word around, whereas anybody reading it wouldn't care. Right. So I should probably just go ahead and, and put it out there. Oh, I'll definitely have to keep an eye out for that, and, uh, you know, I'll, our, I'll, yeah. I'll let you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely let me know. I'll definitely t- uh, mention it, uh, you know, here and on Facebook and, uh, and Twitter as well. Um, Michael, you didn't have anything else that you wanted to plug, right? No, not really. I got a few things juggling around, but nothing worth mentioning. They've been juggling around <laughs> okay. long enough. I got like, you know, several sort of low-budget spec scripts for movies out there that, I don't know, hmm. a friend of mine who's a producer that I've been writing them with has almost gotten them sold, you know, several times over the last <laughs> few years. Uh, a Hollywood story, yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely, yeah. If if you get any of them, uh, you know, uh, worked up, let me know. And again, that's uh, this this show will will definitely advertise anything the the either of the two of you do. So I don't know how much of a a listenership I'll have, but <laughs> you'll at least get that much. <laughs> uh, but uh, all right, well. Um, Michael and Mark, I definitely uh, wanted to thank you both for taking time out of your schedules to do the show. Uh, I really appreciated your thoughts about, uh, you know, Exo Squad and X Men and everything. Definitely keep us informed of any projects that you have uh, going on in the future, and uh, we'll have it on the show. Uh, we'll we'll mention it on the show. Um, so, once again, thank you. All right. Well, thanks for having us on. It's a pleasure to do it. Great talking to you. It, it was great talking to you guys too and hey if uh if either of you ever want uh i could add you to the facebook page to the show and if i'm ever discussing a topic that you want in on you can be in on uh, uh any of the episodes where we do sort of a round robin discussion too so uh there's that as well oh yeah that sounds like a good idea i never pass up a chance to pontificate that's great because that's exactly the kind of people that we like to have on the show 
definitely I've been on some shows before where uh, not everyone really says a whole lot, and that doesn't make for great podcasting. But once again, want to thank both Mark and Michael for joining me today. Like I've said before, I absolutely adored X-Men and Exo Squad, so being able to talk with both of you today has been a fantastic experience. And of course, I want to know what you at home have thought as well. Do you like for us to do interviews? Uh, what are some people that you would like for us to interview in the future? Obviously, uh, with 42Cast being a new a podcast, I uh, cannot guarantee that anyone will accept, but I would definitely like to know what kind of people that you'd be interested in hearing from. Uh, and of course, you can leave us feedback in a variety of ways. One way is through email by emailing us at everything at 42cast.com. Another way is through our website, uh, and that is 42cast.com. Uh, you can just click on the comments next to any episode and just let us know. Uh, another way is by leaving us a review uh, for the show as a whole, and you can do that on either Stitcher Radio or iTunes. And of course, you can also leave us feedback by going to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash 42cast, or on Twitter, which is at 42cast. So at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that we have another contest. And just like last time, um, because we've banked up several episodes in advance, uh, I'm looking at episode 13, and I couldn't really pick which, one, which topic that I wanted to put out first. So if you go to our Facebook page, which once again is facebook.com slash 42cast, you will see the post where I mention all five topics that we could put out. And you can go there and put in a vote. Please only vote for one topic. Uh, last time we did this, a lot of people voted for multiple topics, and I thought that was kind of unfair for the people who only voted for one topic. So uh, this time, just pick the one that sounds the most interesting to you so everyone is weighted equally. Uh, I would do a formal poll, but uh, Facebook wants me to pay to upgrade to a premium page to do that, and I don't think it's worth it when everyone can just reply with a comment and just let me know which of the five that they prefer. So uh, I'll get those tallied up, and uh, by the time of episode 12, I'll have determined which one we're doing. So looking forward to that. One other thing that I wanted to plug, uh, since we're talking about X-Men today, is uh, a really cool website that uh, Eric Leewald, who is the script editor uh, that Michael and Mark were talking about for X-Men, he has an xmentas.com blog where he sort of chronicles the making of X-Men, and it's all coming together for a book that is coming out later this year, um, where uh, it'll be all about the making of the X-Men animated series. So uh, when that comes out, I'll post a link for it, and I'll mention it in the comments. So look forward for that. I also want to mention that uh, Mark's book that he was talking about has been published since he did the interview, so there will be a link to that also in the show notes. I'll also be putting a link to the DVDs for both the X-Men series and the first season of Exo Squad, so if uh, you're not familiar with either of those shows and you've listened to this interview and you're interested, you can go to Amazon.com and uh, start picking those up. So that's it for this week. Please join us next week when Chris Evans will not be joining us. And until then, this is Nathan signing off. You've been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2017. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. 
theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. Incidental music is provided with permission by Fur DK. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network, your station for all things geek, classic, current, and beyond. Be part of the crew at esonetwork.com.